Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. Each week we talk to people active in business and the economy about the big issues driving growth in the north of England. We're sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb, owner of Recognition PR. We help scores of businesses promote their products and services. Some are featured on this podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Today we have Philippa Oldham, Stakeholder Engagement Director at Advanced Propulsion Centre UK and Harvey Morton, Founder and Managing Director at Harvey Morton Digital. Later my colleague Joss will be speaking with Chris Beaumont, partner at Clive Owen LLP, Chartered Accountants. The firm has been doing a lot of very interesting work with Academy Schools. So let's start the programme by talking to Philippa Oldham. Hello, Philippa, joining us from the Advanced Propulsion Centre. Well, actually, you look like you're working from home today. But uh, tell us about what the Advanced Propulsion Centre is. So the Advanced Propulsion Centre was set up in 2013 um, at the request of sort of government and industry recognising the need to support the automotive sector in the transition to low carbon technologies, which is obviously now evolved to the zero emission technologies, but to really look at the ecosystem in what we could do to help businesses de-risk and accelerate those new technologies. Um, so during that time, 10 years in the platform, we've invested and supported over £1.4 billion of funding um, into the sector and, and worked across multiple businesses, um, traditionally initially sort of supporting the OEMs and their developments. But as we've evolved over time, we now facilitate the Automotive Transformation Fund, which supports that capital investment and their scale up that's required to really grow some of that capability. Now, you get into the detail of it, don't you? And if you look at the 10 years since you've been established, there have been significant changes in regulation that are driving the change. So Theresa May's government uh, established the 2035 cut-off for selling uh, petrol and diesel cars. That was revised downwards to 2030, now it's back at 2035. And also in that time, the EU brought in the 2035 rule as well. So that significant landmark bit of EU and UK regulation has come in. Um, has that uh, spurred the uh, technological change or was the technological change being driven anyway? Engineers always like a challenge. So um, I think it, it did encourage that change. And I think we've seen it accelerate. As I said, you know, initially, you know, 2013, the projects that were coming to us were very much about sort of engine efficiencies and looking at reduction, reducing the emissions, whereas over then it sort of swinged into sort of the electrification technology. So a lot of batteries, power electronics and e-machines. And then in more recent times, we've been seeing more of the commercial larger vehicles coming through with an interest more in fuel cells and sort of the hydrogen combustion side of things in those areas that are harder to decarbonize. So really, it's about that growth. But it's about making sure that whilst, you know, the, the UK government is supporting a market trajectory, that we're also supporting that industrial side of things, recognising that a huge percentage of um, the UK's uh, automotive sector is for export capability. And we want to ensure we retain that. Now, uh, Philippa, you spoke in the Northeast just before Christmas uh, 2023 at a conference on critical minerals. And, and I think it, it it is probably accurate to say that there is a developing supply chain in the north of England primarily, but not exclusively, that could take the supply chain from the minerals to the battery, from the battery to the drive chain, from the drive chain to the vehicle, 
from the vehicle to the customer. All the way through, it could be possible to deliver a vehicle and its propulsion systems in the UK. Is that too grand a statement to make? You can knock it down if you want. I'm just being optimistic and flourishing. No, I'm all I'm all about optimism, um, definitely. And, and what we're seeing is great in the in the north of England for this. You know, everything from the like you say, the extraction of the lithium, and these are a number of small businesses that are getting significant investment behind them. You know, we're supporting them through the automotive transformation fund that I mentioned earlier. But then looking at that refining capability, and actually, what's what's brilliant to see, and something that we do see within the UK, is the collaborative nature of all of these businesses actually looking at what they can do to share their best practices, their best ways of processing the information that they're getting to really sort of join some of those dots at the st early stage. Um, but so, you, yeah, I mean, you talked about the battery side of it there, but also, you know, you've got organisations like Penzana as well in the north, north of England who are looking at the refining of some of those uh, magnet materials, so some of those rare earths and the permanent magnets, and actually what do you do to feed that back into the chain? So it's not just about getting the materials from the extraction into the vehicles, it's about how you then get those materials back out so we're not constantly digging things out the ground, but we're starting to think more holistically about sustainability and resilience in the UK, about how we can really manage the ecosystem and drive that growth um, and holistic uh, approach. I remember as a kid doing basic physics at O-level, I failed by the way, just for full disclosure, uh, but I do remember learning about electric motors and the requirement for magnets, but then finding out that in the north of England and uh, uh, there are developers of drive systems that don't require these magnets yeah definitely and, and again another great you know story of the north of england is is um advanced electric machines aem uh, so they've developed uh, a motor and actually they were a spin out of newcastle university so again another demonstration of where the UK has great capability and strength in our university academic community, um, but spun that technology which doesn't contain any of those um, rare earths in, in their magnets. And those motors are of real interest actually, and in, in AEM have worked with a number of different uh, OEMs looking at how they can uh, support the development of of vehicles not using some of those harder to obtain uh, materials to drive performance and again help with the growth and and they've received significant investment recently which is great but also are growing that capability in the uk now does the advanced propulsion center have a point of view and is it working with other forms of propulsion that aren't electric for example hydrogen because there's a lot of uh, desire to build hydrogen catalyzer plants now, uh, particularly in Teesside, but uh, I think in the Northwest as well. Yeah, definitely. We we are technology neutral, um, recognizing that it's not a case of electrification or something else, but actually there is a real requirement uh, for a mix. In actual fact, we have a, a company that we're supporting through our technology uh, developer um, accelerator program, blur, get the words out, uh, <laughs> Catalysis, who are looking at how they can produce ammonia by uh, cracking ammonia, uh, producing hydrogen by cracking ammonia. Um, and actually, that's something that is, again, of real interest for those uh, harder areas. Likewise, there's obviously Cummins, um, and they've been looking at how they improve 
at the performance of some of their uh, turbo charging technology, not only for improving the efficiency of their internal combustion engines, which will probably run on hydrogen, but also looking at the cooling and the efficiency of fuel cell systems. So really those heavier vehicles uh, that we see in things, you know, obviously the heavy duty and logistics side of things, but also the off highway. So a lot of the construction vehicles, for example, that we see, which again, we have a very big market stake in the UK in the off-highway sector. How do we ensure that we're, we're anchoring that capability and technology and supporting them with the development of some of these cleaner uh, non-fossil fuel developments, recognizing uh, that we need to do something now um, and actually uh, hydrogen combustion can be a real solution for some of those vehicles as we sort of develop the capability around uh, fuel cells. I was talking to a senior director of a company that makes earth diggers, I won't name the company, there are only a couple in the in the marketplace, maybe three. Um, and he was saying that that is exactly the way they've got to explore because they've determined that if you are to charge a battery uh, for an earth digger, you will require as much charge overnight as 100 houses would require in electricity because the battery for the kind of energy needed to have an earth digger uh, would be so big in terms of its capacity. Exactly. Um, and, and we've got to move the discussion away from it being either either battery or, or, or hydrogen. You know, the discussion's got to move away from that in terms of the capability and what we have access to. You know, there's some really uh, good examples of what's happening in the hydrogen combustion side of things. And actually, you know, a lot of the testing results that's coming out of those organisations is showing that actually the emissions that come out, you know, they are zero carbon. Um, there is still some slight knocks, but actually with after treatments and developments around that, you know, they become lower than the ambient background uh, emissions so actually they need to be part of the solution you know only only this week we had you know we've already increased uh, temperature by one and a half degrees so actually you know we need to be acting now with technology that we have available now to make sure we, we are moving as quickly as we can across all these different vehicle types uh, to drive the uh, reduction in emissions and I've got, I want I'm going to end on your technological developer uh, technology developer accelerator program in a minute but I, I think that some of the work you're doing and I'll make this point that uh, it is true that when it comes to global emissions uh, they are higher it is also true that the UK has led the world in its reduction in emissions but we're only a tiny proportion of the world but when it comes to the brains and developing the technology, we're way off there. I mean, we, some of this stuff that you're talking about could be world saving if it were developed and, uh, and sold to other countries. Um, yeah, and that's exactly what you know, we're here for as an organisation is supporting that collaborative research and development uh, of these technologies. And actually, as I said earlier, you know, the UK's automotive sector is, is renowned for its export capability. Um, and actually, you know, the discussions we're having uh, with some of those OEMs, I mean, we saw, again, investment in uh, the Ford Halewood plant to mean that they could uh, develop that for their electric drive unit system. So that's shifting from transmission production to electric drive unit. And they're reckoning that there's going to be around 40,000 uh, produced a year for the commercial vehicles and passenger car market through that plant. So what do we do to anchor and really grow that UK capability to support mm. the jobs and growth? I'd like I'd like to see uh, maybe this isn't down to you, but as I, I now I know I own now a hybrid car, um, and one of the things I'd like to see is battery degradation information, 
uh, I know that that battery will stop working in a few years and it, it can't be replaced very easily. But whereas, you know, I can replace a battery in my watch very straightforward or, or, or a battery in my lawnmower I can replace, um, but not in my car. And I think the industry probably needs to get across with, while it's doing the innovation, it also probably needs to get into how do you, how does a customer buy a vehicle and maintain its lifespan for longer? I think, you know, what, and, and you've just hit on the battery management systems there, and that's where we're seeing uh, significant uh, companies through our, through our technology developer accelerator program. But really the OEMs are looking at how they can manage those batteries and control them and develop mm. them. So they're actually, we're constantly getting that updated information and feed, and then hopefully feeding back to the, uh, the the user in how best to use their vehicle but you know on a, on a positive note i think initially when we when we're looking at the electric vehicles that are now coming uh, from first use into second use actually the degradation is is nowhere near where we thought it it potentially could be so actually batteries are performing much better uh, than we did that's the same with solar panels i've got solar panels on my house and you get told that they only have a certain lifespan but many people that installed solar panels 10 or 15 years ago are finding that the lifespans are greater than they were led to believe rather than worse but yeah, it's, it's, it's a confidence yeah. issue if you could replace your battery and you know you can replace your battery it would give you more confidence wouldn't it yeah, um, potentially, you know, that is a model that's been adopted by some of the OEMs out there who are trialing different schemes. Um, I think, you know, one of the things, again, we're, we're seeing is when initially potentially some OEMs are putting a skateboard system, so it's an all integrated system, whereas actually as we're seeing more increase in, say, digital technologies in the design, so that vehicles are becoming, we're describing them as digitally native, um, is actually how do you make sure that things like the batteries would be replaceable? And again, that's a different business model that some of the OEMs are starting to consider. So it, it's very interesting seeing how, you know, nobody globally has, you know, that that perfect answer yet. And, you know, it's great for, for engineers. We love it because, you know, there's always a challenge and always things that we can improve. But as you say, you know, how do we make sure that the batteries that are in the vehicles are being optimized, uh, but also where can we look at potentially the those different chemistries that are coming through and making sure that they are not only um, performing as best as we can do, but actually are potentially more abundant and actually then can, how do we re-extract them and then reprocess them back into the system? Just finally then, um, people watch this podcast and listen to this podcast who are in business and they know people in business and there's a sort of cascade effect. Uh, can regular people in business contact you if they've got something they want to develop related to advanced propulsion systems if there are small businesses that don't know you exist are you wanting to talk to these people or is it all done through universities and so on no 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 we we speak we speak to everybody we will speak to anybody um about anything uh related to propulsion well i usually i'll speak to them about anything anyway but um really just about our propulsion technologies yes i mean really our business development team and, and all of our teams are very uh, supportive and engaging with whether you're a startup to right through to the oems or if maybe you're looking at transitioning across the sectors as well i think that's one of the things we see from a high power perspective uh, in the uk some of the transition between uh, the off-highway heavy duty linkage we say maritime and, and rail so actually how do we pull some of that supply chain into the automotive side of things but really two areas of, of funding and actually calls we have open at the moment is our collaborative research and development program so they are projects that can be up to 25 million 
uh, with the number of different partners. They have to have a route to market. But again, you know, engage with us on that. That closes on the 15th of March, but they sort of happen about twice a year. And how do you really, again, take those consortiums and that late stage research and development and really look at how you can accelerate the commercialization? And the second one probably that will be of interest to your to your, your listeners and your viewers will be um, the uh, Technology Developer Accelerator Program, which is there uh, to support companies up to 170,000 available there. But that takes companies for those startup spin outs and small businesses, not only through that, you know, technology development piece, but it also helps them with things like creating the right investment case and the pitching opportunity. It helps them to protect their intellectual property. Uh, it helps them develop their leadership skills and really look at how best they market their product offering as well. So it's that really whole suite of, uh, of skills and techniques that we help support them with to make sure that we, we take those businesses forward. Philippa, it's a brilliant, uh, innovative centre and I wish you all the best luck because I think you're going to be really important for UK PLC in the years to come. Stay on the line. We'll come back to you right at the end. Thank you. Harvey Morton joining us now. Harvey, different entirely. Nice to see you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Well, How are you? Very well. What do you think of what uh, Philip is saying about the future of propulsion and vehicles? Is this the kind of thing that you think... Are you are you interested in it? Because you're a digital marketer, aren't you? You're in a, a new, modern, advanced zone yourself. Yeah, always interested to to hear about all the developments that are going on, and I think it's a it's an exciting time and to see how things are, are growing and building as well. Now, you uh, have written a new book, "Succeeding as a Young Entrepreneur: Lessons in Life and Business." That's young, right, yeah. young entrepreneurialism is so important. Uh, I started my... I've never actually had a paycheck. I've never paid PAYE tax. I've always mm -hmm. been a self-employed person since I was 16. So uh, I, it's all in my blood. Yet younger people now coming onto the workforce, they there seems to be even more people choosing to be self-employed, taking advantage of different platforms and different methodologies to earn money. And the objective of having a job isn't automatically the first choice. That's it. And I think um, Gen Z particularly are really wanting to do something and have a sense of purpose, whether that's in employment or whether um, that's in self-employment. So, yeah, they're, they're wanting to do something that makes a difference. Um, and more young people are exploring self-employment as well just because... I think there's, um, I suppose, a lot of toxicity around um, being in employment from a young person's perspective from certain industries that are either hard to get into because everyone wants you to have some experience even for an entry-level role um, and also those, those workplace cultures as well. So I think young people are starting to kind of make their own path so that they can get that experience and maybe move into employment later down the line. I was interested at once to talk to a friend and a client of recognition, my firm, Duncan Bannatyne, and he was, of course, yeah. on the Dragon's Den, one of the dragons on the Dragon's Den. And he always felt, uh, going back 10 years ago so, that schools should, as part of the curriculum, teach an option that you can start your own business. And I know mm -hmm. some schools have business clubs and so on. Uh, and actually, more have done. 
uh, on popular television, Dragon's Den, The Apprentice, have become staples in cultural life over the last 10 to 15 years. And they are making it acceptable for people to want to own their own firms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started my business at school through a local enterprise competition called The Big Challenge. And basically teams from schools and colleges got £25 to start up a business idea. Um, and that was what gave me my entrepreneurial skills. So I learned more from that experience than what I did in the classroom. And it was never the plan for it to turn into my career, but I think it just sparked something in me that wanted me to, uh, to keep going, being self-employed and still went through sixth form and university mm. um, and everything like that. And then I got to the end of my time at university and decided to make a go of it properly um and that's why i chose to write my book as well because i go into so many schools where i mean some schools don't even have a careers leader for a start but none of them teach a lot about entrepreneurship so there's definitely a gap in the market there and if you think about how the pandemic has changed a lot of jobs and everyone's um sort of moving to work from home things have become more digital and that's also meant that some jobs and and different careers are mainly self-employed um particularly in performing arts and things mm. like that so um yeah that the book covers starting a business but it also covers working as a freelancer excellent and that's um yeah that's something that anyone can do that i mean the book's aimed at young people but it's for anyone really where wherever they are in life because lots of people decide they want a career change even or to start a business later in life as well Yes, I, I can I do agree with this. I agree with a lot of what you said. By the way, I also think the government should get rid of IR35 to make it easier for everyone to choose to freelance if they wish, not to mandate yeah. people out of jobs, but to give people the flexibility they wish if they wish to do so. I think when I was starting my business in the 1980s, uh, the business itself, the, the impression was you were either Dell Boy and some kind of spiv because you wanted to start in business, or you were some established figure that owned a factory and drove a Rolls Royce and uh, you're all very well to do. But yeah. the, the truth of it is there are, there are many people, probably like you and I, from working backgrounds, who actually want to go into business for good reasons, starting mm -hmm. with funding our own family and lifestyle, but then going on to creating jobs and employing people. And, you know, when I get up in the morning on the first of the month, I know that I've got 12 people's mortgages to find money for. And that yeah. is, it isn't exactly a social service because I'm getting rewarded for it as well. But it is certainly a contribution to society that goes more than just beyond enriching myself. And I, I think probably the new young entrepreneurs might think more like that than they mm -hmm. will just of money. Absolutely. And I think um, a lot of young entrepreneurs set out to solve a problem from their own experience as well, something that they want to change. I mean, for me, before I had that opportunity to to enter that competition, I'd been through so much bullying at school. And even when I did come to enter the competition, some of my teachers said to me, are you sure this is what you want to do? And after I'd made a success of it, 
they said, oh, you should be focusing on your studies and that, you know, this isn't a full-time career. So I think that sparked something in me to want to prove them wrong. I, I like that. That's a rebel. A I, I like <laughs> that. My own mother told me I could never work on the radio and I, I, I gave up an apprenticeship in the steelworks and went and worked on the radio and I, I'm glad I rebelled. Uh, but there <laughs> we are. Uh, now, um, so let's talk about a little bit more about your book. Um, the, the Gen Z young entrepreneur uh, has a different maybe approach to business than just making money. Um, but mm -hmm. there are a lot of dilemmas, aren't there? Because, you know, I was driving to work on Friday and uh, the roads were relatively clear. It was damp. It was relatively early. I'll work a long day. And actually, I, I go to work and, and, and work hard. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people maybe of your generation, who want to just work on the basis that they have to do it their way. But life involves compromises. And if you actually want the rewards, sometimes you've got to just suck it up, haven't you? Yeah, you've got to put the work in. And I think a problem that's arisen recently, probably since the pandemic, is there's lots of people on social media, um, even young people that have started a business that tend to romanticize what their daily routine yes. is actually like and and make it out to everyone that it's easy to set up being self-employed and you can come and go as you please and i don't think that helps when um people that are employed think of freelancers they they sort of imagine someone who just decides to work some days and not others mm. i think you know you've got to put the work in you've got to be passionate about what you're doing and it is going to be hard and you've got to compromise along the way because not everything will go to plan and that's a really important lesson as well i think when i go into schools and and talk young people are really excited at the thought of being able to start their own business but until you get into it, no one really knows how much work is involved and yeah. how many late nights and, um, you know, sleepless nights you'll have. And because, like you said, with you employing a, a team of people as well, you're responsible for their income as well. So you've always got to be, um, you know, working hard to, to make sure they get paid as well. Uh, you're a young guy and, and I know you've, you've set up your business and been a freelance relatively more recently than me. How did you feel the first time you had to fill out a tax form? How did you feel the first time you had to understand how VAT works? And, and do you mm. think that th th that is a necessary de-romanticising that you have to get through in order to be a success in doing what you do? Yeah, and no one teaches you how to do a tax return or anything like that. And, um, you know, I had to sort of go out there and find people that could help or use online resources to teach me how to do it. And and still, even then, it's it's hard to know how to get everything right in business. And these are the sorts of skills that should be taught to young people. Yeah. I mean, just just finance in general and and for subjects you know in schools to be always related back to real jobs I don't think there's enough of that that goes on and it sort of leaves you in this position where you do things for the first time and sometimes you get it wrong because no one has told you how to do it and 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 lots of 
you know, self-employed people and, and people in employment are just learning on their own a lot of the time with That's these right. things. I was going to say one more thing that I think, I hope you'll agree with me on. If you don't, please say, but uh, I run a PR firm in, and, and PR firms are notorious for having interns. And I'd like to have an intern and once a year I have an intern and I always pay the intern. And I think paid internships are very, very important um, because if you employ an intern, you get the you get an obligation back. You, you got someone who's who's coming along free to give their time. They're not really obliged to you. But if you say, well, you've got to be here at nine o'clock and you've got to finish it, uh, the the work before you leave, and and so on, and and you give them challenge for the quality thresholds they've got to try and achieve, even though you're teaching them as you're going along. If you pay them, you 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 give them a sense of the work experience that's real. Absolutely, and I think that's so important that people are paying their interns and anyone that they've got on work experience if they can, because I think in certain industries, I mean, I work a lot across um, media as well, and it seems to be commonplace for internships to be unpaid, for work experience to be unpaid, and yes, you might be giving that young person their, their first experience of the workplace, but by paying them, you're going to earn their respect and they'll be more involved in what they're doing because, yeah, they're getting the experience, but they're also getting the value of, of being paid and receiving that first paycheck as well. And those are experiences and, and, and lessons and skills that you can't, teach elsewhere unless you do it right well uh, having said that i'm not paying you for this interview but i hope your book will and i'll just remind people <laughs> about your book which is succeeding as a young entrepreneur lessons in life and business thank you harvey we'll just flip back thank to you. philippa as well philippa what do you are there any takeaways from from you i mean it's clear that harvey's uh, approach gels in with your modern approach to the future as well it definitely everything Harvey said is completely up in here, nodding away, agreeing with him. Um, because yeah, I mean, in fact, I was at a, a school networking event the other day around sort of science, technology, engineering, and maths. And one of the key things I said to them was, you know, get out for work experience because it doesn't matter if you've you know got the best grades in the world from an engineering perspective. You need to have worked in business. Um, and really understand the operation of how businesses work to get through. And and again, you know, just back to how it links into the technology, it's some of that that transition of skills, you know, our, as our jobs and that we support and the, the projects we support is about creation of, of skills and jobs, but it's also about transitioning those people to learn new skills and develop their their capability and grow their own skills. And and the entrepreneur thing, I mean, that's exactly what that technology developer accelerator program is for and why it's not just about developing the tech, but really, as you said, Harvey, giving them that rounder skill about, you know, finance development, marketing expertise, you know, how to have those sort of conversations. And, and it's important to every business. And I completely agree that sometimes schools don't always apply uh, what what we should be doing in the real world, and actually, I think uh, students would benefit from it. Well, Philippa, Harvey, it's nice to end this session on the a note of uh, a note of agreement, and uh, for, for two people talking about the future in a positive way. Thank you, Philippa. Thank you, Harvey. And now to something a little bit different. A couple of days ago in this studio, my colleague Josh Havakin spoke to Chris Beaumont of Clive Owen LLP about academies and how they are being funded and working through their business life. 
Thanks, Graham. Um, viewers may notice that this week I've had a promotion. I'm sat in Graham Robb's usual seat, and he is heading off here in a few weeks' time, so maybe you'll see me back here. Who knows? Uh, I'm very happy to be joined by Chris Beaumont, who is a partner at Clive Owen LLP. He's responsible for the not-for-profit offering that Clive Owen have, and I'm very happy to have him here today talk to me about a new report. Thanks for coming along, Chris. Thank you for having me. So what is this report then? It's the Creston report on... It's a report looking at the financial health of the academy sector. So within England, what you've got is you've got 22,000 schools, over 10,000 of those have actually converted to be academies. Mm -hmm. And obviously, therefore, it's exceptionally important that we actually understand how financially viable those organisations are. So as a firm, we look after around about sort of 60 trusts, which are involved about 400 schools across the northeast in Yorkshire. Wow. And what we do is we coordinate with other uh, firms within our network, which is the Creston Network, to actually look at that financial health. Um, overall, we'll look after, well, as you can see on the slide there, we look after nearly 300 trusts, that's sort of nearly 2,300 schools between the Creston uh, Network. So it's a, it's, a, it's a fairly representative sample, sort of 12% of all trusts, 22% of uh, all schools. So it gives us a good idea of the financial viability. So the report covers, you know, huge amount of schools. So it's indicative of what's happening across the whole of the academy sector. What are the, some of the key findings? Well, what we found this year, and it won't be a surprise to many of your listeners, is that because of the cost pressures that are out there, and I mean, energy is one. We're looking at typical increases there are sort of like 49% coming through a lot of schools, even with the sort of the caps and everything else that so, so way above what people are paying at home? Probably in line with actually what people are paying at home, but you'll know from your own bills, you were paying sort of 150 a month, you're now paying 225 a month. If only it was that cheap, Chris, yes. <laughs> but what we've found is there have been very significant costing pressures coming through from sort of the energy, very significant cost pressure across the board. I mean, catering, obviously, food costs mm -hmm. massively. And therefore, whereas when we're looking at the results in for the year ended August 2022, there were trusts predicting sort of, or actually had surpluses for those years, um, all types bar the primary, um, small primaries. What we've got this year is all the trusts have got very, very small um, surpluses coming through. And when I say very, very small, I mean they're down by between 85 and 95% of what they were the previous right. year. So that is a very, very big reduction. And what that means is they need those sort of services to actually invest in things like estates. Uh -huh. Also, the reports that have been coming out from National Audit Office and government itself around actually the health of the sort of education estates. Yep. And actually, the fact they need significant money spending in them. Well, actually, at the moment, what we're finding is that actually the trusts don't have those services coming through to then go and invest actually in the estates which they need to invest. So. I get the picture. They're struggling for cash. They need more money to be able to spend to improve their facilities, to improve their education. What's the what's the solution going forward? What what do schools and academies need other than a big whack of money? Well, unfortunately, it probably would be a big whack of money, but as a country at the moment, given budgetary constraints, it's not as if we can put a big whack of money actually into things. So it's going to be up to trusts to actually look at actually how they're doing things at the moment. And actually, some trusts, because of the way that sort of reserves and cash balances are different, and cash balances tend to be very much bigger, 
they need to be having a look at how they can sort of use those cash balances. So is it a question of they can put them on deposit somewhere, get four or five percent? I mean, very really in quid, you're talking forty, fifty thousand pounds of additional income. Uh-huh. And some of these trusts come out five, six, seven, eight million pounds on their balance sheet, which is it's there and it's going to be required. But actually, if you can get the timing of that money right, it can actually give you some additional uh, funds coming through. It's also things like looking at the estates program and actually coming up with a long-term estate program. So actually not just looking at sort of what we're going to do over the next sort of 12 months. Mm-hmm. Taking a longer-term view, yeah. And therefore, it stops some of the decisions which have probably been taken over the last few years whereby A has been done because it has to be done, and then two years later, that's almost being mothballed and basically end up with a bit of wasting money within the sector. Mm-hmm. That's not always reflecting on the trusts. That's sometimes a reflection on how the money is coming out of central government. Well, it's a good job that uh, so many of these trusts have got uh, the services of Clive Owen LLP and yourself at their disposal, isn't it? Because it sounds like you're taking that longer-term view, you're giving advice that's going to help them to secure their future and the future of the children that they're educating. So I suppose it's a fantastic job that you've got this report and now there's some clear desk, a clear footpath for them to continue down. So th- thank you very much, Chris. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Very interesting to um, speak to you. If someone wanted to read this report, where could they get it? They can download a copy from our website, www.cliveown.com, or if you send an email into our marketing contact, which is on the website, then we can send out a hard copy if you don't want to download a copy. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Now, if you want to join us as a guest on this podcast, do contact my producer, Harry Sinclair, and he'll see if he can get you on. And thanks also to Harry for producing this programme and my technical operator, Joseph Sayer. Join us again and don't forget to like or subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.